Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about his recent precautionary self-quarantine thanks to COVID. Hear how he kept himself busy. Then it's on to the lives of a special mother and son, St. Monica and St. Augustine. Find out why St. Augustine's book, The Confessions, stands out to Bishop as being an especially good read. Then he talks about why he gave a presentation to Catholic Relief Services on his trip to Gaza and the West Bank. If you have a question for Bishop to answer, you can submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you for joining us again today. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm excited about some of the saints we're going to talk about today. You know, this is a great week for saints, Yeah. Uh, especially tomorrow, St. Monica, Friday, St. Augustine, and then Saturday, the Passion of St. John the Baptist. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love this. Uh, August saints. There's great saints in the month of August. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have a prayer to start us off with? You know, I thought a prayer I love to, to pray is uh, a short prayer of St. Augustine. And since we're celebrating his feast on August 28th, I thought that would be a good prayer for us. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. St. Augustine. Pray for us. St. Monica. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Very nice. You got back oh, a week or so ago from a self-quarantine. How was that? Was that, was that like a vacation? Not at all. Uh, I had so much mail to catch up on that I think maybe the Lord wanted me to catch up on mail. I I get so many emails and regular mail. So I kind of hunkered down and and did that. Although I, you know, I really missed the confirmations in my, Mm -hmm. you know, 15 and a half years as a bishop, I never delegated priests to do a confirmation class. So I had to do that. I didn't you know, for the confirmations that were scheduled for the two weeks that I was in in quarantine. I really missed it. You know, I take very seriously that the bishop is the ordinary minister of confirmation. Mm -hmm. So I am very reluctant to delegate our priests, give them the faculties to do confirmations. Now, they can do confirmations, for example, when they baptize an adult or receive uh, an adult into full communion with the Catholic Church. The uh-huh. law allow the canon law allows them. So you see priests doing confirmations at the Easter vigil, right? But only the bishop has, by law, the authority to administer confirmations. Uh, otherwise, like uh-huh. the confirmations of these Catholic baptized Catholics, a priest to do that needs a special delegation from the bishop. Mm-hmm. So I never do it now. I guess if I got sick or something like that, I would have to do it, but I've never had to until this quarantine. I mean, it did cross my mind to to postpone those, but that's not really fair to the people. I mean, we've already right. postponed them from the spring. Imagine 
you know, postponing them again. So, yeah. so I'm grateful to the pastors who, who confirmed on my behalf during those two weeks. And there were quite a few because I had a lot of confirmation scheduled during that time. But, but now I'm back. So uh-huh. I've been confirming. I was at Saint, last week at St. Dominic's Bremen, and I had four confirmations at St. Pius X in Granger this past uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and, and then on Sunday at St. Joseph LaGrange. So I've been back in the confirmation circuit and, uh, you know, really enjoy it. Well, and for those that missed the news, it was in local news and stuff like that. Oh, that I was so embarrassed. You, you weren't uh, symptomatic. You didn't test positive. You were just being precautious because you had been right. near some people. And so. Right. So I was kind of, you know wondering why did that get into the news because you know i kind of like to i don't like being in the news and um but i wanted the people to know why i wasn't there right so i said to the priest yeah tell them i'm in self-quarantine so you know at the masses for confirmation well of course then it got into the news but yeah i didn't get tested right away because doctor fellow was better to wait like a week because it's more accurate that way but i had no symptoms uh-huh. and, but I thought it was the prudent thing to do because if I was infected and I'm celebrating these confirmations and coming in contact with all these people, that would be awful. Right. So I'm trying to be very careful, you know, at the confirmation masses, for example, when I'm confirming, I wear a mask and I use the cotton to impose the, the sacred chrism, to administer the sacrament. So I think it's important to take those precautions because... And also in distributing Holy Communion, because, you know, we don't want an outbreak uh, starting in in one of our liturgies. Sure. I was looking at the symptoms of coronavirus, and one of them is the loss of smell and taste. Yeah. So if you had to lose one of your senses, what would you opt for? I'd probably say... I would assume it'd be smell or taste over sight or, or hearing. Yeah, right. I'd probably say smell. Smell. I wouldn't mind. I mean, I don't smell things that well anyhow, so. (laughs) There's a lot of things I don't want to smell anyway. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you mentioned some of our feasts coming up, including tomorrow, August 27th, is St. Monica, who is, of course, the mother of the Friday feast of St. Augustine. Uh, She obviously prayed for him a lot, and he eventually converted, which is a great little... I guess it's the the shortest version of this little prayer and answered prayer story. Yeah. You know, uh, St. Monica is is a popular saint. I mean, we have a parish in our diocese in Mishawaka, St. Monica's. Father Jacob Myers, the pastor, it's a wonderful, thriving parish. And, you know, she was born in North Africa in what is today the country of Algeria. A lot of people don't know that. They Hmm. think she's Italian. But she was a wife and mother and just um, uh, a wonderful example. And therefore, she's considered a patron saint of mothers. So to all the mothers out there, you know, it's, she's a good one to ask for intercession. She, she helped her husband. Her husband's name was Patricius to uh, come to the faith because he was a pagan. And I don't think it was till the end of his life that he became Catholic. But, but he, he died prematurely. And so she had to take care of the upbringing of the three children. You know, Augustine was one. Augustine had a brother and he had a sister. But he was a pretty rebellious young man, <laughs> rebellious temperament. And uh, we know about Monica, especially because 
Augustine wrote about his mother in his spiritual autobiography. His autobiography, as most listeners probably know, is is titled The Confessions, The Confessions of St. Augustine, mm-hmm. one of the greatest books I've ever read. If you haven't read The Confessions, it's a masterpiece. And in that, he talked about how he imbibed the name of Jesus with maternal milk. In other words, hmm. it was his mother who educated him in the Christian faith. And this always stayed with him, even though he drifted from the faith. He wasn't baptized. He was a, you know, a catechumen, but you know, his mother never stopped praying for him and for his conversion. And you know, it was near the end of her life that she had that wonderful consolation of seeing her son return to the faith and receive baptism. She had prayed so much, and and God heard her prayers. So there are many mothers who are in distress and distraught when one of their children gets on the wrong path or leaves the church. Mm -hmm. It's great to look to Monica and her perseverance in, in prayer. After Augustine was baptized, he and his mother were going back to Africa, you know, North Africa, his home, their home, and he was going to embrace the monastic life, you know, have a little monastery and have a community of monks. That was his intention. So on the way back, they, before they went down to Ostia, which is kind of a port not far from Rome. So they were going to go there to get on a boat. And so it was in Ostia that uh, she died. But before she died, and this, she was just 56 years old, she told her children, and Augustine one of them, to, not to worry about her burial, but to remember her wherever they were at the altar of the Lord. Hmm. So I, I love that. You know, yeah. she, so the whole idea of remembering our deceased loved ones at the Eucharist or offer, having Mass offered for our deceased loved ones. You know, we see this all the way back in the fourth century. Yeah. You know, the idea of praying for the dead and praying at the Eucharist and having mass offered for for the faithful departed. So anyhow, Augustine, you know, caused a lot of heartache for his mother, but she never stopped persevering in her prayer for her son. And Augustine said that his mother gave birth to him twice, the first birth, the natural birth, but then it was when he received baptism because she had been praying for for that and uh, for his conversion. So it was because of her prayers and her many tears that he was born again. It's like a spiritual labor. Right, yes. She went through. Huh. So to all the mothers out there who maybe are, you know, tempted to to lose heart, I would say keep firm yeah. in your trust in God. Pray for your children and persevere in that prayer. You mentioned the Confessions of St. Augustine. I've never read it myself. What do you like about it so much? You know, it's so profound. In, in other words, it's not only an autobiography, but it's his you know, you, you kind of see what's in his soul. I mean, it's beautiful literature. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way it's written, it's so beautiful. But also, you you see a person's passionate search for God, 
Augustine's search for truth. And he talks about what was really going on in his mind and in his heart through all this. So it's kind of a, some will say it's kind of early psychological kind of thing, but very spiritual. And so his reflection on his life that you read in, in the confessions is, uh, I think, something that all of us can, can relate to in some ways, the struggles, the pain, and then the joy of, of discovery, discovery of, of the truth, discovering mm-hmm. Christ and, and how that transformed his life. How is that different from some of his other writings, City of God and I don't even know what else? Yeah, he has, I mean, he's one of the most prolific writers. I mean, he's the most prolific of all the fathers of the church. Huh. He's written more than, than any of them. Um, he has commentaries on the Psalms. We have hundreds of his sermons, his great work on, on the Trinity. You mentioned City of God. So there's a lot of classic texts of St. Augustine. It almost seems impossible how one man could have written so much in, in, in his lifetime. Well, especially since he started so late, I assume. Like right. this, this was right. after his conversion that he started writing these things. Exactly, exactly. And um, I'm trying to remember, I think he was in his 30s when, when he converted. Okay. Um, maybe like 36. So... Yeah, he he was man of great intelligence. You know, we can move to say talk about Augustine because his feast days Friday. We've talked about Monica, Augustine's journey, and we get we know most about his life from his, this autobiography, from the Confessions. He was extremely intelligent, and his Latin was superb. You asked about how the Confessions is different from his other writings. I'd say because they focus on his interior life, okay. his spiritual life, and his relationship to God, and and his the mystery of the human person in relationship to the mystery of God. Augustine was born, as I mentioned, in North Africa. By the way, that was a Roman province at the time. It was called Numidia. Huh. And uh, he, he was born in 354. His father's name, as I said, was Patricius. He was a pagan. He later became a catechumen. His mother, Monica, was always a, a fervent Christian. Where does the hippo come in there? Well, that's where he became bishop, and that's in oh, okay. the same region. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of times you refer to as St. Augustine of Hippo. Right. But he was born in a, a city called Tagaste. Okay. Tagaste in the Roman province of Numidia which is present-day Algeria. So a lot of people don't think of Augustine as African, but he was African. Mm -hmm. Now, he he did receive the salt, which is when it's one of the stages of the catechumenate. His mother was raising him in the Christian faith, but he he didn't get baptized. He had, as I said, a brother and sister. Where he really excelled in his studies was in grammar. And then he studied rhetoric, and he went to the major city, the capital of Roman Africa at the time was the city of Carthage. So he studied rhetoric, and he mastered Latin perfectly, and, and he read various great writings of Cicero and others. And then he read the Bible, but he was disappointed by the Bible. Very <laughs> okay. interesting. One of the reasons was the, the Latin translation wasn't that great. Okay. So... 
But was, he also was even, this before Saint Jerome or after? Couldn't remember because Saint Jerome did a translation. The Vulgate, yeah, the Latin translation. I'm not sure. I'd have to look that up. I think. I think. Uh, I think Jerome was after. You can probably do a quick. Looks like he was. He died in 420. Yeah, so I'm not quite sure because they were kind of lived around the same time. So I don't know what translation of the Bible Augustine was using, but it was the, uh, the Latin style of the translation that he had just didn't measure up to what the beauty of Latin as he appreciated it. But it was the content also. When you, he didn't find the lofty philosophy that he liked and... Uh, now, he was always fascinated by Jesus. So he was always, you know, it's not like he didn't, that he rejected, you know, but he was seeking. He was seeking the truth and he was trying to find, you know, what religion, you know, had the truth. And, and also he was open to drawing closer to Jesus. Mm -hmm. But he fell into a heretical group, the Manichaeans, which we may have talked about at one point. Remember, they were... They would call themselves Christians. They presented themselves as Christians, but they really were were not. They said the world, they were dualists, kind of a Gnostic group where there were two principles, good and evil. And this dualism was something that attracted Augustine because of various reasons, high morality, etc. So somehow, because of his this, this tendency to a rational kind of religion attracted him to the Manichaeans. And also, they were popular, so it kind of didn't hurt his career either. There were influential people, etc. And he entered into a relationship with a woman, you know, outside of marriage, and, um, and had a son, illegitimate son, named Ad Deodatus, who he loved very much. And what he did in his profession, he was teaching grammar and rhetoric. He did it, he was teaching in Tagaste, is where he was born, then in Carthage. He became famous as a teacher of rhetoric. I mean, he was really, really bright. And in his search for the truth, he started seeing problems with Manichaeism. Mm -hmm. He started become, becoming intellectually disappointed because he still had these doubts and he wasn't finding answers. Uh, so he went to Rome and then to Milan, and he got another important post teaching. But it was in Milan that he started to listen to this eloquent preaching of the bishop there. And the bishop was Ambrose, St. Ambrose. <laughs> he was fascinated, first of all, by his rhetoric. You know, here, that was, you know, Augustine's profession, you know, a teacher of rhetoric. And, and, uh, but it was the content. And he was very touched by not only in his mind, but in his heart. And then he started, you know, what he had difficulty with regarding the Bible earlier, a lot of it was with the Old Testament because he didn't find it very beautiful and all these stories of wars and everything else. It just wasn't inspiring to him. And it didn't have that high philosophy that he, kind of was attracted to. But then he heard Ambrose preaching and how Ambrose interpreted the Old Testament as a preparation for Christ. The, all the foreshadowings, the what we call the typological interpretation of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. which we've talked about in this show and we've gone through different things, which is so neat. And then he realized, yeah, this Old Testament has depth 
and beauty. And there is good philosophical teaching there, and as it's all a preparation for Christ. So he was able to kind of see this synthesis between faith and reason coming together in the Logos, in the Word made flesh, in Christ, the eternal Word, who was made flesh. So the uh, Ambrose's interpretation of Scripture, allegorical interpretation, plus some of the Neoplatonic philosophy that you find in St. Ambrose, that helped Augustine to overcome the intellectual difficulties he had when he was younger. So he read the Scriptures anew. And especially the letters of St. Paul were really had a profound impact on him. So this long inner journey of many years where he was searching came to this point of embracing Christianity. And you can imagine the joy of his mother as he prepared for baptism. And he was 32 years old when Ambrose himself, St. Ambrose baptized him in the Cathedral of Milan in the year 387 at the Easter Vigil. Hmm. And then he decided to return to Africa, as I mentioned, and stopped in to, to, to live a monastic life. And I talked about, he, he stopped in Ostia, and it was there where his mother got sick and, and she died and his heart was broken. When he went back to Africa is when he settled in Hippo. You mentioned the, the city of Hippo. Uh-huh to found this monastery but uh, and then he was but he was ordained a priest there he really wasn't anxious to be ordained a priest but he was huh. kind of almost a little bit against his will but <laughs> he he uh, he was ordained a priest in the year 391 then he had his companions who began this monastic life of prayer and study and, and you know because he's so intellectual he that's it kind of reminds me pope benedict you uh-huh. know he loved the intellectual life. That's why Augustine's a great hero of Pope Benedict. Sure. You see a lot of Augustine's thought in Pope Benedict. Hmm. And that's the kind of probably life that Benedict would have enjoyed. Well, it's the same thing as Augustine. And then not only did he become a priest, so he had to minister to people, that he had this vocation to be a pastor, he was exemplary in it. He was great. He reached out to the poor. He preached a lot. I said, we have a lot of his homilies. He founded various monasteries. So he was ordained a bishop four years after he was ordained a priest. So in 395, he became a bishop, and he became an outstanding bishop. And um, he remained a bishop of Hippo for 35 years. He was able to fight Manichaeism and other heresies. He was, you know, there was Pelagianism, and there was Donatism. And he would, he, you know, his writings against these various heresies, he was defending the Catholic faith. And then in his 70s, he, this, the city was being, the vandals from Northern Europe were attacking, were, were besieging the area, the region. And at the same time, he got very sick. And he asked, this is one thing that's really, when you read the life of St. Augustine, he asked that the penitential Psalms of the Old Testament be written in large characters on, on the walls of his room so that he, while he was bedridden, he could see and read them hmm. as he prepared for death. And that's how he spent the last days of his life. And he died on August 28th, which is the date of his feast in the year 430. He was 75 years old 
you know, rather than getting into a lot of his teaching, I think it's good, at least in this show today, to, you know, to, to know what his life was about mm -hmm. um, and his discovery of God. God, who was apparently, he felt, was so distant from him, but then he found him and realized that God wasn't just some inaccessible deity but that he had become man and he wasn't distant, that he was bringing him along towards him. And mm -hmm. um, one of the most famous passages of the confessions, when he was so tormented by all this, he withdrew to a garden. You might know this story. And he heard a, a voice of a child who was chanting a rhyme that he had never heard before. And the rhyme was tole lege, tole lege. In Latin, that means pick up and read, pick up and read. Hmm. And he remembered that St. Anthony of Egypt, the father of monasticism, also had this kind of a conversion. So he did. He picked up the Bible, he opened it, and he, his eyes fell on a passage from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's in chapter 13, and where it talks about abandoning the works of the flesh hmm. and to be clothed with Christ. And he felt this is, these words were addressed personally to him. And so all his doubts kind of evaporated. And he doesn't talk about his conversion. He talks about God converting him mm -hmm. to himself. So here he was seeking God, but, you know, God was seeking him. Right. As I mentioned, you know, when he was ordained a priest and a bishop, this wasn't all part of his plan. He would have been happy as a monk praying and reading and studying, but he ended up being a great bishop. And another really interesting thing that I always, near the end of his life, had to do with the Sermon on the Mount. I, I love this because when we read the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, etc., it seems such a high ideal for us. Augustine had the idea that once he got baptized and received the Eucharist, he would live that life of the of the Sermon on the Mount, that perfect perfect life, but then he realized towards the end of his life that he was mistaken. That only Christ Himself truly and completely lived the Sermon on the Mount, hmm. and so what we need to do is be washed by Christ. We need to be renewed by Christ. That this conversion isn't just once; it's permanently being converted to the life of Christ. So. There's this aspect of humility that we're sinners and we journey along and the Lord helps us. We can grow in our likeness to Christ, but we have to realize that we need his grace. We must depend on him. Only he lived perfectly the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And that's something that you find in the in the writings of uh, Pope Benedict XVI as well, he'll he'll talk about that, and and that's why sometimes Augustine's called the Doctor of Grace, hmm. because he had this beautiful theology on on divine grace and how we need God's grace. So yeah, Augustine's a great saint. So I recommend anyone uh, wants to, I mean any of the writings of Augustine, but I'd begin with the Confessions because. Uh -huh. And I think I first read the Confessions when I was in college, I think, and I remember it had a big 
impact on me that I, it was just a great spiritual reading. Mm-hmm. You mentioned him being inspired by opening up the Bible and turning to St. Paul's writings. Have yeah. you ever had that where you read something in the Bible and you feel like that was specifically yeah. meant for me? Yeah, yeah, definitely. When I've done Lexio Divina, you know, oftentimes. It's interesting that passage, you know, Romans, it's Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. And it says, let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So those words cut him to the heart. Yeah. You know, that's when his conversion, and it was at the next individual, uh, Easter vigil that he was baptized. I think his son, Adeodatus, I'm not sure if he was baptized or if he was a catechumen, but he died young, and that was mm. very hard on him. But he also had a converted. Um, but I'm not sure if he died as a catechumen or died after being baptized. I have to research that. I did mention that after he died, you know, the vandals were sacking Hippo and they also burned the city of Hippo. This is after he died. And, but his uh, library, Augustine's Cathedral and his library were not burned down. So hmm. back in those days, there was no process of canonization. Um, he was canonized by popular acclaim and mm-hmm. that's how that was the custom. It wasn't really a papal, a pope canonizing saints like we do today. Mm-hmm. The people acclaim someone a saint. And, and he's one of the great four Latin doctors of the church. The four, uh, Ambrose, mm-hmm. of course, because Ambro- you know, Ambrose was his teacher. Jerome and Gregory the Great and Augustine. Okay. And of course, he's a doctor of the church. You have to be holy, a uh, saint, but also, you know, because of his theological and philo- philosophical and spiritual works. Did you have any reflections on the passion of St. John the Baptist this coming Saturday? That would be, I mean, I think uh, you, we used to call it the beheading of John the Baptist. Uh-huh. Now it's called the passion of John the Baptist. Yeah, I think everyone knows the story of John the Baptist, but I since we probably don't have enough time, we could maybe do that another time. But I would just say that uh, it's interesting that the great John the Baptist, we have two feasts. We celebrate his birth on June 24th, and we celebrate his death, his passion, on August 29th. Mm-hmm. So that's unusual in the liturgical calendar. Right. Usually a saint, it's the day of their death, but we also celebrate the day of his birth. But it's because of his He's the precursor of the Lord. You could say the last of the prophets before mm-hmm. the coming of Christ, but also really the forerunner of Jesus. And um, his fidelity to the end of shedding his blood for the truth is something that uh, we remember on on August 29th. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 260- Four three six ninety five ninety eight, and we'll talk about Bishop's presentation for CRS regarding the Holy Land and get an update coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values, why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. 
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And I remember on the August 12th episode, you mentioned that you were preparing a presentation for the CRS regarding the Holy Land. So how did it go? It was really good. You know, I I had talked, I'm sure, three years ago after my trip to the West Bank and Gaza. That was a very profound experience for me. And so... In what uh, way? How was it profound? Well, remember, I mean, I got to see, I mean, you know, I got to see some of the, not only places that I've been to before, like Bethlehem, which is on the West Bank, it's Palestinian, Mm -hmm. but also areas that aren't usually part of a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Uh We went to Ramallah, which is where the Palestinian Authority is, uh, that's their capital, went all through East Jerusalem, which is the Palestinian section, mostly Muslim, but also Palestinian Christians. Okay. But also the city of Hebron, which I really tried to visit. That has the tomb of the patriarchs on a previous trip to the Holy Land. But because of the violence there, as we approached and rocks were being thrown on our bus, we couldn't go. Hmm. So this time... I was able to visit and pray at the tombs of the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. And and I think I spoke on this show about how divided that city is with right. the Israeli sections and settlements and how the Palestinians there are, have very limited movement where they can't, you know, certain streets, they, can't, they aren't, aren't accessible to them. And it's a very, very tense city that violence erupts there at various times and uh, and then of course going to gaza which is of course there's the blockade so just get being able to go into the gaza strip was you know that's normally you can't do that and then to see what life was like for the people there the two days i spent in gaza and and especially celebrating mass a tiny catholic community in gaza Mm -hmm. holy family parish because the holy family stopped there on their way to egypt the flight into egypt right seeing the great work of catholic relief services helping the poor the missionaries of charity who are there in gaza you know they're right next to the parish and they take care of disabled Palestinian children hmm. and some elderly people too. They have two houses, and that was just so beautiful to see their love. and And even though the Catholic Church is such a small presence in Gaza, it's a beautiful presence. Is and it persecuted? Then, no, because it's interesting. I would say you know the terrorist group Hamas is the government of of Gaza, so you know they're hmm. not governed by the Palestinian Authority. So it's it's a difficult place. So it's it's in a way it's and, and of course Israel, you know, there's bombings sometimes and mm-hmm. so it's a very dangerous place. I remember being there. There's not good water, there's electricity is out like half the day. Mm-hmm. So at night it was pitch dark. I remember that very much. But I think because the sisters and the Catholic community you know, they're just known for their charity. Right. You know, and CRS too. Um, because they're helping. So they are respected. And I, I don't think persecuted as far as I heard. And one of our CRS staff people, um, I got to know quite well, that who works there, Bassam, who himself is a Muslim. And I've had some contacts with him. He just loves the sisters. Hmm. I mean, and they are, he's so close to them. And when his, Israel was bombing 
Gaza at one point. There were three wars, but um, he w got word to uh, that where the missionaries of charity were, so that they wouldn't get hit by one of these bombs. And and these disabled children that they take care for. I mean, these are kids who have pretty severe disabilities, and the sisters take care of them and shelter them, and it's really quite moving. Hmm. Gaza has the highest unemployment in the whole world. So, and a lot of young people, I mean, it's like 40% unemployment, but if you look at the young adults, it's like 60% unemployment. So Catholic Relief Services is there helping with, with that. Um, for example, they have a, uh, they didn't have this when I was there, but now it's their uh, nursing support, CRS does, because they had about 3,000 unemployed nurses in Gaza. So Wow. And it's very inadequate healthcare system. And so CRS has been providing a lot of support for nurses and trying to get them employment. Mm -hmm. You know, the people aren't allowed to leave. No one's allowed to get in. I mean, you have to have a special permit to get out, to come back. So it's very difficult, whether you're going on the southern way out of Gaza, which is in Egypt, or north towards Israel and Palestine. It's very, it's just unbelievable type of existence. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd never seen anything like it. In the call last week, we got, kind of got an update on, you know, what's going on in, in on the West Bank and in Gaza, uh -huh. especially in light of the COVID pandemic. Right. And, you know, the great danger, and I, I was thinking about the people there, so CRS is always, you know, kind of at the forefront of trying to help when there's any kind of a disaster. So when you think of something like we see the devastation of COVID here in our country, but imagine an area or a country, the countries where there's not a good healthcare system, mm -hmm. you know, so the hospitals on the West Bank, like in East Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron, et cetera. I mean, they just didn't have supplies. They didn't sure. have the equipment that you need, the PPE, they had very few ventilators, testing of for the virus, mm -hmm. all of that, even the staffing. Now, and then two years ago, the U.S. stopped providing any foreign aid to Palestine. So that's another thing. That was in 2018. Mm -hmm. It was through our private donors that CRS was able to provide a lot of these things during the pandemic, starting in March. And actually, we advocated quite a bit for a government grant to help, and we did get one. As a matter of fact, I was involved in that. So CRS has been a leader in response to the pandemic on the West Bank. There was a, uh, the worst area, I think, was Hebron, of all places, where we've had the most positive cases um, of of COVID, but it actually began in Bethlehem. So there was a, a little outbreak in Bethlehem as well, as well as other places like East Jerusalem is part of the West Bank. That's the Palestinian part of Jerusalem. So CRS has really been very, very active in fighting coronavirus in Palestine. Uh, there have been probably about 15,000, more than 15,000 cases. The danger is, you know, that the lack of adequate health care. So that's where CRS has really been very active in, in trying to help with getting all of those uh, resources that they need. The epicenter really is Hebron. There have been very few cases in Gaza because it's so isolated. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to Bassam, my friend who's there, uh, you know, who works for CRS, and I asked him about it, and he said um, that if I was coming back, I said, I want to get back to Gaza sometime, and he said, you're welcome to. If you come now, you'll be in quarantine for three weeks huh. because the Gaza uh, government is really strict of anyone who comes in, and including Gazans who leave when they come back, they they're in a they're kept separate sure. for three full weeks, but that's that's that prevented yeah. uh, an outbreak because if there wasn't an, an outbreak in Gaza, it would be, I mean, it's so densely populated, you know, I mean, and such little healthcare, right? It would be just terrible. I mean, it's it's a very the, the cities and the towns of Gaza are are quite uh, densely populated. So you have, uh, you know, this Gaza has been devastated by years of war and conflict and a widespread out, outbreak. They wouldn't have the resources to deal with it. And um, so, so far, so good. There have only been a few who've had it and it's been contained. Okay. So anyhow, that was part of the purpose of the phone call last week was to kind of get an update on what's going on. In, uh, and what CRS is doing. You know, the normal things that, that CRS has been doing in Gaza and the West Bank have continued, you know, our work in education, jobs, home improvements. You know, one of the big things that I saw when I was in Gaza, and this, this continues, is building dignified housing. You know, I, I saw all these bombed out homes. Mm-hmm. So, there, I mean, so this is still, these these homes are being renovated, rebuilt, et cetera, so people can live in some dignity. CRS is very involved in that. It's interesting, besides the physical stuff, like the buildings, it helps people in their their regular lives to have more confidence and pride. So the CRS renovation project has has been uh, very, very important. One of the things that we see now, too, is the education of girls. We've really been... CRS has really been involved because oftentimes um, girls would get married so young that they never got educated. Now we see more girls getting married after having an education. So we have the, these renovated, renewed homes. Over 1,200 families now have decent housing thanks to CRS in Gaza. Mm, wow. Job projects for youth, which I mentioned, especially the focus on the education of girls. They keep advocating for restoring U.S. funding for Palestine and Gaza because it's very, very difficult, so very poor. CRS is also in Lebanon. We all know about the awful explosion there. Hmm. So CRS was very much part of emergency response. We have partners in all these places, the Catholic Church in Lebanon, et cetera. We work through Caritas Lebanon. Before the disaster happened, we had a whole emergency response where we had trained organizers for how to respond in cases of emergencies. So that went into effect with mobile clinics and mobilizing ambulances, all that kind of stuff that when you have a a disaster you need to do. Mm-hmm. Now they're involved in removing debris and providing food, shelter for those who lost it because of the the fire. So that's kind of an update. Uh, I'm always very interested there. Uh, someone said to me once, well, why are you so interested? 
I love CRS's work in obviously in Africa and Central America and other places I've been. But it's also very important to be there in the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. I mean, the land where our faith, where, where the word became flesh. It's important that the church be there. We can be a force for good, right. uh, helping to bring peace and never give up hope for that. Right. Um, so. All right. And if people want to support CRS, crs.org. There's a lot of great work that they're doing and you can donate through the website and appreciate you for filling us in and give us a little update there. And a reminder, if you have any questions, you can submit them using the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Kyle. To hear Kyle's 2017 interview with Bishop about his trip to the Holy Land, check out the link in our show notes. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.